John 15. Let me start by reading verse 18 through chapter 16. Today I want to talk about when and how to be hated. When and how to be hated. Verse 18. Jesus speaking here. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you in this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their, in their law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you about this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But, the very, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. And unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he, what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Skip to verse 33. I have told you all these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That is the scripture that will be in this morning. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the scriptures, your word. Lord, this is... Uh, somewhat of a very mysterious, uh, frightening uh, text, one that we wouldn't come to unless it was right here in front of us. Um, so we ask for grace this morning, understanding. And Lord, this whole thing, you, you said these two things. You came, you said these things so that we would not fall away and that we would have peace. And so I pray those two things. I pray for encouragement, that you would give us courage and strength as we hear this today, the followers of Jesus, and that you would give us peace, Lord. Peace, God. I speak peace over this church. Would you bring the peace of the Holy Spirit upon us now? Anoint me, use me, Lord. I spend all of my capacities to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Last week, if you were here, we looked at what, we looked at very wonderful metaphorical phrase that Jesus gave his disciples about what it looks like to have our homes in God. Who remembers that phrase? The metaphor. He is divine, I almost said divine. (laughs) He is, but you didn't forget that, probably. He is divine and we are branches, right? Because that's the metaphor he used. That's the controlling metaphor for this entire section or this entire speech or this entire uh, couple of chapters. Jesus builds his point about life in God with so much talk about love. That's what the whole point of last week was. Jesus mentions this word love a ton of times. Let me walk you through a few. In chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, it says this. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remained as his love. So love has to do with remaining in God and then remaining in his commands. And that's how we abide in the love of the Father and the love of God. Verse 12, Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. This is the command of the church. The church is to be marked by love, love for one another. And love that has an actual definition to it, not just love in the sense of like, I love you, bro, whatever, but like a sense of like, Jesus laid down his life for me, and I will lay down my life for you. This is self-sacrificial love, not a love that self-preserves, but that self-gives. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then verse 17, this is my command. He could not say it any more plain. This is my command, love each other. Making our home in Jesus has a lot to do with love. That's the making our home in Jesus is the phrase that we interpreted abide or remain in me. Okay? That was, we interpreted it as saying last week, it means to make our home in God. So making our home in God has a lot to do with love. Loving God, loving each other, loving God's commands, self-sacrifice. That's what we learned last week. But now there's a further development in this speech. There's further development with life with God or life in God. To have our home in God, our text now talks about in the same speech that Jesus is giving about the vine and the branches. With the same breath, Jesus says this. It's on the screen. To be at home with Jesus is to be at odds with the world. This is such a hard thing to teach. I'll just be completely honest. I've been dreading this day. This is hard to say. This is not popular, and you're not going to be going, oh, gosh, thank, thank you for that. You'll be like, why did we ever study this book? Like, this is hard. To be at home in God means that we are at odds with the world. It really, it turns really fast in verse 17 to verse 18. Did you notice that? Look at verse 17. Well, I lost my place. Sorry, let me go back. This is my command. Chapter 15, verse 17. This is my command. Love each other. It's all about love. Love, 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 love. And then verse 18. If the world hates you. Well, whoa, that turned really fast. Like, it's all about love, and then Jesus introduces hate. Like, I want you to love, but guess what? The world's going to hate you. Actually, in the second half of John 15, Jesus uses the word hate a lot. Love is mentioned nine times in the first 17 verses, and then he uses the word hate seven times in the next eight verses. He uses hate by saying that the world will hate you. Hate you. The world will hate you. If they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they cast me out, they will cast you out. If they kill me, they will kill you. I'm so sorry this is Mother's Day. And this is like, what, 
Can I just break the whatever weird tension in the room? Like, wow, this is Mother's Day at this church? Yes, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> this is a very hard teaching to digest in America. What does it mean that the world will hate us? Does it mean that Christians will not be accepted ever in business or finance or politics or media or government? Is that what this means? Does it mean that we should stop trying to be loved in the world? Stop trying to, like, try to be accepted by our neighbors? Should we just accept that people will hate us and then turn into monsters that they think we are? Should it be that that we should be afraid if we are loved? What if the world does love us? What if, like, the whole city starts going, I love you guys. Should we be afraid? We're like, oh, my gosh, they love us. That's not supposed to happen. Why do they love us? Are we too much like them? Should we be afraid if they start to love us? What does it mean that Christians are in the world but not of the world? That sounds super cliche. Now, I believe that Jesus addresses many of these questions in this text. In this text, we will learn something about the Christian's relationship with the world, and we will learn something about the Christian's relationship with Jesus and the Spirit. So we're going to learn about the Christian's relationship, the follower of Jesus' relationship with the world, and then we're also going to learn about his relationship, our relationship with Jesus and the Spirit. First, our relationship with the world. I need to define the word world first, because we can't think of it as the land of redwoods and waterfalls and good surf in Hawaii and great snow in Colorado and like great fly fishing in Montana. When you think of world and and you start you start hearing um, Louis Armstrong's like song in your head, like that's not kind of what's going on here. When the word world is used here, it refers to, you might want to write this down, the moral order and active rebellion against God. The moral order and active rebellion against God. This world has been, ha- had this order ever since Genesis chapter 3 when it's rebelled against God and culminated in chapter 11 of Genesis in the Tower of Babel, when all the people of the earth wanted to reject the name of God and make a name for themselves, basically giving God the middle finger, saying, we want nothing to do with you. That's the spiral in Genesis chapter 3 through 11. And after chapter 11, you're left to ask, will there be anyone who listens to God? Anyone. This thing is spiraling out of control. And then you read chapter 12, you meet this guy named Abram. And the whole thing reboots again. And then now someone's going to obey God and follow God. Today, this rebellion, I would call this exclusive humanism. Where there is no higher good than human good. We actually make room for this in Christianity, in our Christianity, in modern Western Christianity. That is is wrong. We usually say something like this. We don't say it out loud, but we believe this. I will serve God if God serves me. That's kind of how how we frame it. Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher, uh, wrote a fairly hard-to-read 900-page book on secularism called A Secular Age. And I will not claim that I've read that book, but I read a book about that book, so that should count for something, right? Just something. Just give me something on it. In the book A Secular Age... Uh, Charles Taylor defines what he means by exclusive humanism as a very modern option in the marketplace of beliefs. He says this in his book. For the first time in history, a purely self-sufficient humanism came to be a widely available option. I mean by this humanism, he means exclusive humanism, accepting no final goals beyond human flourishing, 
or any allegiance to anything else beyond this flourishing. Of no previous society was this true. What he's saying is that we live in a society where exclusive humanism is an option, where everything is there for our flourishing, and there's no end, there's no end other than us being happy or us flourishing. There's no eminent, uh, there's no, there's no like transcendent God. There isn't any God that we'd worship. There isn't any God that we would be accountable to. It's just us and what we want in life. And we think that we can achieve this ourselves without the help of God or any transcendent being. We can do it through our advancements in science, our technology, our collective brain power. That would be a modern translation of what the biblical word for world means. We don't need God at all. We can advance in our own technology, in our own science, our own collective brain power. We can do it all ourselves. And the whole end goal is ourselves and what we deem to be right for us. Now, what, we, what, is that, what, what, what do we learn about our relationship with this world? Quote, world. What does Jesus teach here about our relationship with this world? First off, it's on the screen. This is very important. You might want to write this down. The Christian's relationship with the world will be complex. I think I just need to say that to like maybe ease some tension because this is very, very hard to navigate. Your relationship with that world I just defined will be complex. Let me give you some examples. First John. John, the writer of this book, wrote another book called First John. Not to be confused with John. Okay? He wrote Second John and Third. Okay, so First John 2.15 says this. Same John writes this. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. This word for world is the same thing here. If anyone loves the world, the, the love, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world and the world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. That's heavy. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave same word, world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's a good one. We're like, "Oh, I like that one. Let's stick with that one." John 17. My prayer, this is Jesus praying over his disciples. We're going to get to this next week. My prayer is not that you take them out, them, disciples. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. How did Jesus, how did the Father send Jesus into the world? For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus says, the same way that you sent me into the world, I want to send them. How are we then sent? With love. The love of God for the world. To sum up, Christians, we are not of the world. We are sent into the world. We are not taken out of the world. We are to love the world, but we are not to love the world. Do you see how complex this is? This is like a very complex dating relationship. It's like, I want you to love me, but not love me. You're like, wait, what? Like, did you elongate the word love the first time? Does that mean something? To, like, love the world, don't love the world. Okay, wait. You're not of the world, but you're in the world. Don't make your home in the world, but I'm sending you into the world. Like, this is very complex. This is, this is complex, and we are not to love it, but we are to love it. 
We are not of this world, but we are to live in this world. We are not taken from it, but we're sent into it. We will be hated and persecuted, but in it we will also have people who listen to our teachings, Jesus says. That is all very complex, and I think it helps just to acknowledge that it's complex. Our relationship with the world is complex, and why is our relationship with the world complex? Here's why it's complex. Because we are not citizens of this country. We are not citizens of this country. We, as Christians, are citizens of God's country. We are citizens of God's land, of God's kingdom. That might sound very confusing, but let me explain this in the easiest way that I can. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Philippians. It's a small little letter in the, le- in, in the epistles, like after 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you get into these epistles. Turn to Philippians. It's the last book in the epistles. Philippians 1. I'm going to read this to you. This is, this is probably the easiest way I can explain this to you. We, the reason why it's so complex is because we live in this world, but our, this is not our citizenship is not here. Paul and Timothy, servants of, this is the, this is the, um, the uh, like, kind of, the, the, the welcome to, of the letter. This is, like, their greeting, okay? Paul and Timothy, servants of, of Christ Jesus, to all, this is a letter written to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this, this is all very important. Now, look at this next slide. Did you notice in the middle there, it says, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. In Christ at Philippi. What Paul is saying is that where are God's holy people located? In Christ. Where do you live? This is life with God stuff. This is last week. Where do you live? I live in Christ abide in me, make your home in me kind of language. You see that? We live in Christ with our citizenship in the kingdom of God. That's where we live as as followers of Jesus. Where are God's holy people living? At where? Philippi. So they live in Christ at Philippi. So the easiest way to understand this is that we live in Christ at San Francisco. We live, where do you live? I live in Christ. Where do you live at? I live at at San Francisco. I live out my life connected to Christ in the city and county of San Francisco. Meaning, there will be things about being in Christ, life in the vine, the life of God pulsating through us and in us that will be in direct opposition to life in San Francisco. And we will be more faithful to life in Christ than life at San Francisco. That our true citizenship, our true location that we live is in Christ. There are things, meaning there are things that San Francisco does with their bodies that cannot abide in Christ. And so as we find our location in Christ, we will be, in a sense, kind of standing against living at San Francisco. Like, no, that's not how we live in Christ. There are things that San Francisco does with their money that is not compatible with Jesus. There are things that San Francisco does with their freedoms that are not congruent with being a servant of the living God. So our true location is in Christ. Our citizenship is in him. 
the answer is not to leave Jesus. That would be fatal. That was last week. Don't leave Jesus. Stay connected in Jesus. But here's a piece that we often miss. The, also, the answer is not to leave San Francisco. Like, oh, gosh, it's so hard here to live here. I'm out. I can't be a Christian in this town. No, the, 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 the thing is not to leave Jesus. Don't leave Jesus. Stay in, stay in Christ. But don't leave San Francisco either. The answer is to embrace the tension and the risk of being hated because you're connected to Jesus. The answer is to embrace the tension, to realize this is messy and this is difficult and hard, but I'm going to embrace this tension of living in Christ at San Francisco. That's what this whole speech is about. Don't leave Jesus. Abide in Christ. Make your home in Christ. But don't leave the world. Jesus is not taking us out of the world. Jesus said, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but you protect them in the world. This means that we abide in this city and we abide in all these areas of finance and business and influence all over the city and we do that as people being in Christ, located in Christ. We have to embrace this middle spot where we are so associated with Jesus that we risk being treated like him. Let me say that again because I want you to understand that you would be so associated with Jesus that you and I risk being treated like Jesus. This is a part where Following Jesus, we just, this is hard to compute. He was hated. He was persecuted. And why was he hated and why was he persecuted? If you follow the life and the ministry of Jesus through the Gospels, it becomes apparent that Jesus lived in this middle spot where he lived in the world and cared for the world's well-being. That wherever Jesus was, the kingdom of God was, breaking into the life of the world. So wherever Jesus was, there was freedom Wherever Jesus was, there was healings, and there was working with the poor and the marginalized. He was forgiving people of their sins. He was, he was casting out demons. He was bringing peace to people's lives. Wherever Jesus was, there was freedom, and there was God's presence, and there was the inbreaking kingdom of God. But, so in that sense, everybody wants to be like Jesus. Like, yeah, I want, I want that. But this world is not where he got his satisfaction. At the same time, when he moved among this world, this is not where he got his satisfaction. This, is, this world is not where he got his joy. He didn't follow its ways or its institutional rules. He spent a lot of time both deeply loving people and sharply criticizing or critiquing, not criticizing, critiquing people. And Jesus assumes that life in him, that life in the vine will mean that we will live the same way and face the same threat. That we will live where the kingdom of God breaks in, but we will also look at the world and we know how to critique it. We know how to say that's not part of life with God. That is, not, that is not the shalom of God. That's not of God. And we can critique the world at the same time. And then we fear, not fear, but we, 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 we expose ourselves to the same threat as Jesus, to be hated. But this is key. This is so important. If Christians are to be hated... May we be hated by the same people and for the same reasons Jesus was hated. This is so, keep this slide up for a while. Let this sear into your brain. If we are to be hated, let us be hated by the same people and for the same reason Jesus was hated. I want to just confess this right, right away. There are people who ruin it for all Christians. They just ruin it. Who are just bad people and they say they're Christians. They're bad people, just bad humans, and then they say they are Christians. And I was um, in London this last week, and I, was, I, met with, uh, I was with a, uh, a, a pastor there, 
uh, minister there, and we were walking, going to lunch, me and a group of people, and he's like, oh, my wife works in this building. So I went up and said hi to her, and I met her boss, and it's this firm. I met her boss, his boss was like, what do you guys, because it was me and my friend Tim Traddock from Rail LA, and then Brett, and Brett has this, like, Brett, he'll also be with us next week. He has this, like, giant ZZ Top-looking beard right now. It's awesome. It's just so good. And so we're walking around. We walked in this firm, and the people were like, who, who, who are you guys look like you're in, like, a band? Because Tim looks like he's in a band. And then Britt looks like he's part of ZZ Top, and I'm, like, this random, like, maybe the bass player or something. Just like, oh, whatever. And, um, and, so, and so we're like, what are you guys? And we're like, well, we're pastors in the States. And they're like, oh, my gosh. Uh, California pastors are like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> And so then I met her, uh, the wife, this wife that we went and said hi to and visited, uh, boss. And he's like, oh, I'm not, uh, we're pastors. And he goes, hey, um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not aggressive. I don't, I don't believe I'm agnostic. And I'm not, I'm, not like, I'm not like one of those mean atheists. I'm just agnostic. I don't know. And then later on, um, this person tells the story. This, this, this guy tells us the story that um, his partner um, in the firm, um, they co-founded the, the, this firm together, He's, he claims to be a Christian, but has, is on his third marriage um, because he's, an, as she said, she's kind of an idiot, and spent, just almost brought the company down a couple times because of financial misgivings. And so she's like, I'm, I'm just, I'm so sad because that's his idea of a Christian. Like, I, I don't know if he'll ever come to Christ because whenever we talk about Christian, that's what he associates. People who ruin their marriages and steal money. That, those are just bad people. So, I mean, if that's you, if you're a Christian that's doing a, uh, a hack job at following Jesus in your workplace, would you just, first of all, just say you're a bad person and then repent and ask Jesus to please fill me with your spirit so I can be a proper witness of Jesus Christ? There are those people. But what Jesus is saying here is that and this is the other side of the coin. No matter how good of a Christian you are and how faithful you are to Jesus, there will be people who are persecuted and hated as Christians. No matter how good you are, no matter how much of a light you are, no matter how much that you see the common good in your neighborhood and you go and meet it, no matter how much you see the poverty neighborhood and, and, and meet it with the love of Christ, no matter what you do, you will. there will be Christians that will be hated. If we Christians are to be hated, may we be hated by the same people and for the same reason Jesus was hated. Let me explain that. Jesus was typically hated by powerful people, people with agendas, people that had things to protect. But the outsiders, the oppressed, the powerless, the drunks, the gluttons, the sexually promiscuous people, the non-church-going people did not oppose or get upset with Jesus. These people were attracted to Jesus. They were drawn to him and his community. The, there was something about Jesus that they knew they needed, something about him that when he was near, they knew hope was possible again. What does that tell us? That tells us that Jesus hasn't, wasn't hated for being anti-everything. He was hated because he blurred the lines. He was hated because he went into places where religion was not supposed to go, and he brought the love of God there. If we are going to be hated, can we be hated for that? That's why we need to be hated. Now, not many people are going to argue with that point. Everyone's here, yeah, I agree with that. That's how we should be hated, especially in this town. But what Jesus also did 
was he deeply critiqued the world he lived in. And this is what we probably need a healthy dose of. We have to remember that Jesus was a threat to the world system of the time. Jesus' first followers went around saying, Jesus is Lord in a world that was only allowed to say, Caesar is Lord. That word, Jesus is Lord, is a very politically charged, a threat to the powers that be sort of statement. It meant Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of my body, of my sexuality, of my money, of my time, of my politics, of my home. Jesus is Lord. He rules over all those things. We will share our tables with everyone, but not our beds with everyone or beds with no one. We will share our money. We will open our lives to the poor. We will be true citizens of another country, the country of God. And that's what Christians did. Christians today need to critique our world systems. We need to look at them and critique them. What if true Christianity was a threat to consumerism? Think about that for a second. Meditate on that for a bit. What if Christianity, true Christianity, was a threat to consumerism, the God of our age? We're not, Christianity is not a threat to consumerism. Christians are actually a highly marketable group of people. They actually gear all, all kinds of movies and paraphernalia towards the Christian world because they know that you will eat it up by the gobs. They know it. And so they market it towards you. What if we were a threat to self-expression as the ultimate form of freedom? What if we were a threat to that system? What if we were a threat to celebrity culture? What would it look like to deeply love the world and also not live in accordance with its flow, but critique the world? What it might feel like, the experience of that tension might feel like being rejected. It might feel like being isolated. It might feel like being hated by the world if we actually did this. One of my favorite commentators, uh, Frederick Bruner, um, writes this on this section. He says, commentator in the book of John. He says, it apparently deeply uh, irritates the world that the disciples' lives are not rooted in the world, which must mean that, by and large, disciples do not go along with it or do not find their deepest joys, resources, or interest in it. Indeed, that they honestly find much to critique in it, go against many of its major convictions, and seem solely out of step with many of its major passions. Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised by the potential hatred of the world. He, he says these things so we will not be caught off guard. So when we're living in step with life with God, when we are connected to life in God, located in Christ at San Francisco, and there's this weird tension that happens, and when it starts feeling like we're being rejected by the world, Jesus is like, don't, don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised. When that starts to happen in your workplace, not because you're being a bad person, but just because your association with Jesus Christ, when that begins to happen, do not be surprised. Jesus says, I want you to know these things. If the world hates you, hate you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Remember that it hated me first. It's hard to think that a city like San Francisco would hate Jesus. You hear people say, I like Jesus, I just don't like his church. You couldn't get away with that with Jesus. There are people who ruin it. Yes, I get that. That's one side. But there's another side where the, that the rejection of Jesus today is looked, what it looks like today is a rejection of his people. So there are people that go, well, I accept Jesus. 
Well, I don't really know about that. Jesus associates so deeply his church with himself that to not receive his people in his name, they're living according to life in God, are to reject himself. That's what Jesus does. And you have to hand it to Jesus. He was pretty upfront and candid about the social consequences that came with discipleship. He's like, hey guys, listen. Um, it could be social suicide for you to become a follower of Jesus, or me, as he would say that. It might be social suicide. Social suicide for you to become my follower. They might kill you and persecute you and throw you out of the synagogue, and they think that they're doing a service to God by killing you and taking your life. And Jesus wants you to know this. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. He says, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Jesus wants you to know this because when you start to live life in Christ, there's going to be this, like, um, this tension that almost feels like an earthquake of your, of your like your very soul, your very being, like this earthquake. Everything is being unearthed and shaken to its core. And when this happens, you're going to feel this tension. You're like, this is too hard to follow Jesus and live in this world. And there's a temptation of you to fall away. There's a temptation of you to go, oh, I, can't, I, don't wanna, I don't know if I can follow Jesus anymore. I think I'm just going to go this way. And this is the way I'm going to find fulfillment. This is the way I'm going to get a spouse. This is the way I'm going, to, I'm going to make a name for myself. This is the way I'm going to establish my company. This is the way I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to have to leave Christianity aside for a bit. Jesus like, I'm telling you now, you're going to come to this place where it's going to feel like this, like you're in a vice. I'm telling you now so you won't fall away. I'm telling you right now so when that time comes, you would have courage, that you would stand and abide in me and follow me. I want you to know that it might be social suicide for you to follow me. That might happen, but take heart. I've overcome the world. That's our relationship with the world, and it's complex. Second, this point's not that long, promise. What, what, what do we learn about our relationship with Jesus in the Spirit? Look at verse 7. Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So what's the logical conclusion that we can draw for this, from this? Jesus has to leave in order for the Spirit to come. Jesus has to leave for the Spirit to come and bring the ministry of Jesus to the world. Jesus has to leave for the Spirit to come in us and then, and then start his ministry in the world. In John 16, we're told that in verse 7, um, not verse 7, verse 8, when he comes, the Spirit, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is the only verse that we have in the entire Bible of the Spirit's work in the world right now, the world, the fallen world, where we see that it's, it's there responsible for sin and righteousness and judgment and convicting and convincing the world of sin and convincing them of what Christ has done. That's what the Spirit does. But for the Spirit to come, for the Spirit to be kind of set loose on the world, Jesus had to leave. How did Jesus leave? He was rejected. He was crucified. Through the rejection, the hatred, the persecution, and the death of Jesus, the life of God, the Spirit, was released into the world. Do you get that? Through Jesus' rejection, his persecution, his hatred, and his death, the life of God, the Spirit, was released in the world. Okay, so... How, what is our relationship to this? How will the life of God be released in the world through us? The same way. Jesus is revealing here how we are called to become like him. We too will accomplish the works of God, not just through powerful words and wisdom, but through our weakness, through our rejection, and even through our death. 
We too will overcome the world, but not in a visible way, but through our littleness and our poverty. We will be crushed, and through the crushing, the life of God will be released into the life of the world. Jesus was crushed, and the Spirit was sent out into the world. We, his church, will be crushed like Jesus was. And it's like those heat packs that have to be crushed and broke before the heat is released. You know those things? It's like that. You and I, as Christians, need to be crushed and broken in Christ, in this world, and then the Spirit of God is released into the world. The relationship that we have with the Spirit and with Jesus is that as we identify with Jesus, as we identify with life in God and the world, the world, the world order rejects us, hates us, crushes us. The life of God is released through us. Our, our, the founder of our faith released the spirit of God and overcame the world by his crushing. And then we are people like him. We can't get away from this. You will be crushed as a follower of Jesus. John uh, 16, 33, Jesus says this at the very end. I have told you these things. That's the second time he said that. He's like, I told you these things. What's the first one? So that you will not fall, what? Away. I told you these things, and I want you to fall away. And he says it again. I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Because Jesus knows the last thing that we'll feel when we're being rejected or even hated because we, but we're pouring out the love of God in the life of the world. When we're, we're, we're serving, when we're rejected by serving the marginalized in our world, when that happens, we know that, that the last thing that we'll have is peace. But Jesus says, I'm telling you these things now so you have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I love this verse. Jesus wants us not to be surprised. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. How did Jesus overcome the world? Through his crushing. Jesus overcame the world through his death. Jesus died, submitted himself himself to the powers that were trying to rule the world and he submitted himself to it and was crushed under it and then by that subversive crushing he overcame the world through his resurrection what's the point the point is to take heart when you are being crushed by this troubled world because when take heart when you're being crushed by this troubled world because it was through the crushing that jesus overcame the world so when we're being crushed jesus is like that crushing that i went through is how i overcame the world and how you will overcome the world through the same crushing. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is the life of God, and this is what God wants to do in and through us as we stay connected to him. It's not, um, this is difficult. This is a hard word. It's a hard word to preach, and it's a more difficult word to live. But church, I believe that Jesus might be wanting to say to our church this morning that as we stay connected to him, we have, all these, we have all these books that are written right now and all these ways to say that we are want to be accepted in the world. And that, that, is, that is definitely a thing. But there's this other thing that I really believe that God wants to say to us this morning, this church, is that by our association with Jesus and our life in God, not everyone will love you. Not everyone will love us. They might actually hate you. They might actually reject you. 
because of your association with Jesus, because of your association with the church. And you and I are still called to love. We are still called to love. What we, our posture, love. My command is just love one another. And what's the world going to probably do? It might hate you and it might reject you. But what do you do? Love. I want to close as we, I want to meditate on a prayer of St. Francis, the patron saint of San Francisco. I want to just close with this um, prayer. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. And then I want us to uh, sit with it for a while. I might read it a couple times. Just sit with it. Let me read it to you. This is the prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much speak, seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we, par- we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born again into eternal life. Amen.